Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. If you like the content that we're putting out and you'd love to see more, make sure you subscribe to our channel as well as share it with all your friends. Welcome back to the first episode of our second season, where we're going to discuss our infamous Elixir of Love production. We're going to talk about the goals of this production and possibly any other production we choose to put on, the specific vision of this show, and the processes behind putting it all together. As with our podcast We have similar goals. We want to break barriers that prevent individuals from going to opera, and we want to create a unique and intimate experience for communities to enjoy opera. And we think the best way to do that is by updating them and making it a more relatable storytelling experience. And I'm going to let Mike kind of explain that specific point. How are we making it more relatable and modern? What we're going to do to make it modern and relatable is really quite simple. It's not revolutionary, but it's we're going to put it in modern English in the vernacular. And also we're going to set it in modern day. So by setting it in modern day, we're not only putting it in a time frame where people can relate to it because it's modern day. We're also setting it in a place that's not foreign to them. Even by doing just updating the language, that's not enough for people who are new to this art form. For example, Shakespeare is in English, right? But not everybody can uh, relate to Shakespeare. Well, what are what are the specific things that you think make something like Shakespeare not directly relatable for modern audiences? You know, just to make it really sweet and uh, mm-hmm. simple, you know, their version of English is not at all like how we talk. Certainly, if you are religious... And, you know, there are older texts of the Bible, for example, that use the thee and thou and all that stuff. Sure, maybe it's a little bit easier for you to understand some of the weird ways that, well, quote unquote, weird ways that they used to express English. I mean, think about it. Do you really think all these people on TikTok who are putting emojis <laughs> in everything that they do and everything is shorthand, do you really think they're going to keep up with all the stuff that Shakespeare has to offer? I kind of think not. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Wait, how do we put an emoji in an opera? We have to do this. Oh, for sure. We need to put emojis in operas, even if it's something as simple as putting it in the text. But I think it would be even better if you had like big screens, you know, because everything's project uh, projections now. And then you just put up certain responses <laughs> in there. You could do it that way. Or if you're trying to sing about a text uh, message and then you just have the text showing up on the screen. I think that'd be pretty funny, too. Awesome. OK, so check that off the list. <laughs> 
So now it's going to be kind of like an interview. I'm going to ask Mike specific questions about the vision of the show because he's the mastermind. I'm the soundboard. I do. He spits an idea off of me and I'm like, hmm. Or I'm like, fuck yes. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, you are a sounding board, but really I think what you are is quality control. <laughs> okay. First of all, what what inspired you to specifically modernize the elixir of love? And were there any specific pieces, I don't know, from TV, film, comedy that you included when you were writing the show? One thing to keep in mind about this show is that I started writing it in 2018. And so my goals for it were very different than what they are now to a certain extent. Okay. Um, let's recap a little bit. In 2018, that year, I had written a campus rape culture version of Giovanni. I wrote the stripper version of Carmen and also the Real Housewives version of La Belle Hélène. Yep. So that was a lot of creativity. It was really good, but a lot of extra brain power. Let's just be real. And so when I started looking at it, I thought, well, how can I do something that's a little more normal? Mm-hmm. Uh, because sometimes it just it's just a longer process to do these really crazy ideas. And so I was looking for something that was relatable, that would be funny. And that's really where it was then. Now, fast forward to today. And really, it's it really is about just giving people an opportunity to put their minds on the shelf for a little bit and realize that we are more alike than we are not alike. And a few other points that are important to to make about this show is that <clears throat> this comes from the bel canto period of opera. And a lot of the works that are done are by mainly, in terms of the Italian repertoire at least, is mainly Verdi and Rossini. While those are great composers, there's so many others that are just as good, but for whatever reason, they don't get done as much. And so I wanted to do this because I love Donizetti. Also, it has one of the most beautiful and iconic tenor arias that gets me every time in the original and also mine. So I wanted to make sure that people could listen to this music and and realize how good it is. Another side of it, too, that inspired me was I love gender-bending roles, and this was a perfect place to do it. Because in my version, I wanted Dual Kamada to be a woman, and it's set in a bar, so it's a female bartender. And I feel like is one of my prerogatives that if I'm going to write a character that's female, I want her to not always be an idiot. In fact, I would argue that with few exceptions... I really do try to make sure that I have strong female characters that have a brain of their own, that I'm not following the stereotype that is often in opera. Don't get me wrong. There are ditzes, both male and female, and they have a place in comedy. But there is a trope in opera that women are just idiots and gullible, and that's just not how life is. And so... I think of all the people out there, the person who is a female who is, has to be one of the smarter people out there is a bartender, right? Yeah, uh, female bartenders do not take shit. So having Dual Kamada as a female bartender was great. Also, it's kind of fun having this like underground online 
you know, elixir deal that she's got going on that can cure anything. By Pirelli's miracle elixir, that'll do the trick, sir. True, sir. True. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, second question. How are the characters or the overall setting slash atmosphere different from the original? Well, there's quite a lot that's different, but the core stuff of the show is there. First of all, this takes place originally in Italy. I set it in a bar near you, so that's obviously different. Nemorino is still the village idiot. That's still the same. Adina is still this educated girl that a lot of men want. Uh, Belcore is still a sergeant who's also full of himself and a jackass. And Dual Kamada is still a person who's a, you know, elixir dealer. Really the, the trope snake oil salesman kind of thing. Cause we do find out that it is brandy, right? It's not an actual potion. But sometimes those uh, social lubes can become sort of like love potions. And so as the story goes on, though, this interplay between Adina and Belcorde that Nemorino doesn't like because he's really in love with her. But really, Belcorde, again, he's in the military, so he's going to be gone all the time. And Nemorino just wants to be with Adina and treat her right. So those elements are all there. You kind of mentioned this earlier about how you have a specific statement that you've wanted to make with previous shows. Do you have like a theme or a transformation that you want the audience to experience? Not necessarily that because we both kind of feel this way that an audience should have a particular walk away, but something that you're presenting an idea or theme that you want uh, the audience to think about. With this specific show, I don't have a real specific message that I want to send culturally or whatever. This is really more of a piece to come together and have a good laugh at other people's expenses and to be able to relate to people on stage. All of us have been through a whirlwind over the last pretty much two years now, 18 months, whatever. Yeah. It's time for us to get back to some normalcy. And I feel one of the ways we can do that is by having a show that is a story that is as old as time. People meet, they fall in love, or more aptly, that happens, I think, is one falls in love before the other. And it's like trying to reel them in somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like this is a good way to to bring everybody together. You know, our our whole world has been politicized between covid and then last year in the United States, the election, and uh, there's just been a lot of chaos that's gone on. And I feel that this is the kind of thing that can help people be like, okay, we've been through the ringer. Now I'm here with people doing the things that I used to do before all this shitstorm happened. And it's great. I, I feel like we're, we're moving forward instead of being stuck. And hey, I, I can relate to that person. I've been Nemorino or I am Adina. I'm smart and lots of men want me, but I got to fend off all the the people who want me for nefarious reasons or just people that I wouldn't work out with long term. Or, you know, I've I've been a potster like Dual Kamada or I, I'm kind of a douche like <laughs> Belcore. So... 
it's uh, it's that uh, that relatability of it. Um, I think is going to be really great for people to have something that brings joy to to an audience's life and transports them to a different place is still a beautiful thing. I mean, I think a lot of us can experience that not just by going to opera, but just with music and art in general. Now to talk about the processes behind putting a production together. Oh, yeah. Let's get down to the crux. <laughs> so I've kind of got five major areas and probably the most important is fundraising. Yay, fundraising. Dollar, dollar bills, y'all. I've kind of spearheaded this because I have a fair amount of minor fundraising that I've done throughout my life. Uh, in high school, we did a choir trip to New York City and I funded my entire trip, which was like, I think it was like $1,500 by selling cookies. So uh, you got to hit those church ladies up. They love cookies. Hey, now we all love cookies. <laughs> I don't know that they really love the cookies, but they love to support people. So that's community for you. And I've also done a fair amount of charitable fundraising. Uh, I used to do something called the 40 hour famine. I did it for like, I don't know, like four years where you raise money and you pledge to forego food for 40 hours to experience what it's like to be in a situation um, of many people experiencing hardship throughout the world. That's just given me a lot of skills in how to talk to people about giving money. And um, so we decided to largely crowdfund our our production. And we have a goal of $10,000. We are just under 15%, which is good. We had a goal of trying to do it in two months. And it looks like it's going to take longer. But, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So, like... We we don't have high expectations or anything, <laughs> but we, we it will happen. We, we've we've set the idea that once we're at fifty percent, that allows us to pay other people involved in the production, and hopefully, you know, that kind of steamrolls. And hey, look, we're at fifty percent. Like people believe in us. You should too. Aside from our artistic goals and our desire to bring people into opera, one of our other main goals is to do a production that pays people a fair wage. One of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that it takes a lot to be an opera singer. It takes a lot of training. It takes education. Most people who are actual professionals have master's degrees or higher and so asking for an equitable wage for someone who has that level of education is not out of bounds. A lot of people just think that, oh, you can sing, everybody can do music, so I don't have to pay you anything or I can pay you very little. And that's just, it's not fair. And we as artists have just taken what we can get for so long. And Rachel and I want to be the change in the world that we want to see. And so that's why we're being very transparent about all of our thinking behind how much it's going to take to put our production together, what we're going to pay people. And another thing that people need to realize is that, you know, you could look at it as, okay, well, Mike and Rachel are in the show, so we're fundraising to pay them. Rachel and I have already agreed on our own volition, we didn't force each other to do it, to, if needed, do this show for free and get everybody else paid. Because we feel that it is that important of an issue and we want to set that standard that, yes, we can do it. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize when when they hear like opera th singers, like they, they think it's all glamour and they don't realize that like in today's world, probably less than 50 percent of them are making 
a living wage off of the shows that they're doing. Like a lot of people have other jobs because for whatever reason, organizations aren't paying a living wage whether they're unable to or whether uh, they don't see it as a priority. Not to be a Debbie Downer. <laughs> Let's move on to editing. So with editing, we're done with what we'd call like the rough draft. Mike sent me the score and I looked through it and, you know, just kind of like, okay, here are the things that like really stick out to me. And now Mike is in the process of, you know, doing, I mean, I'm sure you've already done drafts and drafts upon yourself, but doing some more editing and then I'll look at it again and we'll kind of make like the final edits. Yeah, I'm on draft like 10 or 12 since the 2018 version. So I'm many, many drafts in. And one of the things that I'm realizing is that in my efforts to pare everything down and make it more succinct, uh, sometimes I go a little too far and I get to actually add things back in that originally I cut out. So that's actually a really cool place to be in. You know, because while on the one hand, I want to be not too long and state things the way I want to state them, I want to also make sure that it's just that people don't feel underwhelmed when they leave. I want them to also feel like they really got something out of what was said and they understood where I was going with it and all that. Yeah. And all like what I do as an editor is I'll go through and I'll look at the text by itself and I'll say, okay, do I think that this is something that somebody would actually say, like it has to be logical to me um, as a reader. And then I'll look again at the setting of the text with the music and I'll say, okay, this is good. This is good. Uh, okay. Can we figure out a different way to set this that is easier to sing? Right. And not only making it easier to sing, but also making sure that the emphasis is on the right syllable. Right. Exactly. Uh huh. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> beyond that like i try to like not alter the tone of what you've set when i'm looking at it from an editorial standpoint so i try to keep that in mind i don't know about like once you've gotten a note how do you take it and and change it what's your process yeah when i get notes from you my first objective is, is this a valid criticism, which I do. It's not just you. I do that with everybody. And every single time it's been a valid criticism. It's like, OK, uh, how can I quickly make this change and make it in the most seamless fashion? And um, so that's really where it goes to. One of the things that I've appreciated, as you mentioned, is you don't try to change the intent of things that I've said. I have collaborated with people who shall remain nameless, who <laughs> felt that it was their prerogative to tell me what to say or do or to change things mm -hmm. without my permission or at my uh, behest when they were producing it. And so I that doesn't fly with me. Right. We can take all of the knowledge and experiences that we have and be mindful of the things that are culturally appropriate in today's society. And with that understanding, there's still going to be people that are offended by things. And um, we know that our intentions are not to do that. So if people find something offensive, it's out of our control. Right. And for me, what it boils down to 
the more I've thought about it, because I did that whole cancel culture episode, right, last season. Uh And you're right. We can't control what people get offended by. That's their prerogative. I'm sure there are things that I think are cringeworthy that other people are like, yes, queen. But I personally have just come to resign myself to the fact that we can do whatever we want at the end of the day. We're going to have fans. We're going to lose them. We're going to gain them based on whatever we do, right? Yeah. So with that said, things like South Park, things like Family Guy, they've been around for decades. They've gone after literally everybody. They've had, you know, people go after them to get them canceled and they're still there. So what it boils down to is you just got to be authentic. You got to stay true to your mission and your goals and people will ride or die with you or they'll leave. Mm -hmm. And if uh, they get offended by something, that's fine. Sometimes they get offended by one thing in the first act. And then by the second act, you got them back because you offended somebody else, but you spoke to their side. So it's just, it's just a game that we're constantly playing. And so that's why I think it's important for me to just do what I'm going to do. Let the cards fall where they fall, because ultimately there's an audience for everything. And, You just have to trust that if you're doing high quality stuff, it's not going to matter. Because think about it. All these people that have, quote unquote, been canceled, the ones that have come back, why have they come back? Because what they had to offer far outweighed whatever thing the Twitterati had a shit storm over. Right. So you just got to stay true to yourself. Yeah. And we're, we're always open to have conversations with people, you know, like, I, I mean, like if somebody wants to get offended by us doing like the stripper Carmen, uh, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I think we both believe sex work is sex work. And I mean, like strippers aren't particularly sex work, but like, I, I believe that women have the autonomy to do whatever they want with their body, uh, to make money. So, right. And not only are we allowed both men and women to do whatever we need to do to make money as long as it's legal. Yep. Let's first, uh, let's give a round of applause to these, especially pole dancers for the, uh, the athletic ability that they have. Like it's crazy. Yep. Both men and women. I, pff, the amount of training and all that stuff they got to do to keep that pristine. My tassels are off to them. That's what I say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Casting. As you've already talked about, uh, Dulcamara, you had a very specific vision and we've worked together on several uh, productions of yours and you approached me about doing Dulcamara and I'm always down to gender gender bend as uh, someone who is not, how do I say this, I don't prescribe to necessarily the gender binary. Like I grew up as a tomboy and I just, uh, lots of girly girl things didn't suit me, so... I feel really at home getting to play both females and males. It's great. I love it. So I appreciate that you always keep me in mind for things like that. As we're casting, uh, we decided to do do it in what we think is the ethical way to cast is that we wanted we preferred that people sent audio instead of video first because we wanted to do it based on voices. And then we would invite people for auditions from there. So we uh, have already sent out that casting call. You know, as we said, like with fundraising, we're not officially going ahead with the show until we reach 50%. And 
you know, we may decide that, okay, we have either found voices that we're interested in having come to auditions and watch their performance in person, or we may decide that we need more candidates and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But I wanted to ask you specifically, I come at this more from uh, just a general like, this is a good sounding voice, they're a good actor, that sort of thing. But you may have more specific uh, qualities that you're looking for when it comes to uh, Nemorino or Adina. You know, that's a really great question. And I'm sure that there may even be some people listening to this who sent in their recordings so I'm not going to give any hints as to what I'm looking for because I don't want to discourage people who we eventually do ask to come and audition. Because ultimately, I may even have an idea of the kind of people I would like to sing Nemorino or Adina, but then you go to auditions and I could come away with something completely different. So the way I do auditions, and I learned this through previous ventures and these kinds of things, is very different than what traditional companies do. For those who aren't aware, usually what you do is you'll send in your materials. It may just be a resume or like with us, it's resume and audio. And then they'll say, yes, we want you to come and audition. You'll walk in, there'll be a pianist there. Somewhere else in the room will be the people who are listening to you. And then you sing your thing. There's no props. There's no other people there. You know, it's very not like how it would ever be in the real stage. Uh, you do your thing and then you leave. And I don't think that that's very effective, especially for what we are doing. We're doing these in very intimate spaces. And we are also non-conventional. And so I feel like my auditions warrant a non-conventional approach. So what I will do and what we will do is we will invite those who we want to sing, which isn't going to be a ton. Like that's one of the things that's so frustrating about some auditions is there's only one role in the show, but then they'll listen to like 50 people for that role. If you've already sent in recordings and you've listened to people, you don't need 50 people to come. If you're that indecisive, maybe I might suggest you find somebody else to do your auditions, at least help you in the casting. We'll have a certain amount, a smaller amount, and basically we'll perform for each other. And I'll give them the ability to choose whatever they want to sing. And then I will either have them sing something else that they prepared, but I'll give them a twist on it. Or I'll send them something either from the show or something else. And then they'll learn that ahead of time. And like, let's say it's Adina, right? So I'll play Nemorino in the scene and uh, we'll try and act it out because there you have an audience built in, right? It's the other people that are auditioning. And it gives you a little bit of, hey, uh, let's see how you work. Let's see how you take stage direction. Let's see if you're creative. Because I'm a very hands-off director, which means that we need to find people who not only sing well, but also can come up with their own ideas and really make it legitimately the feelings of the character instead of me being like, no, you need to be sad here. You're not sad enough. Well, maybe that's as far sad as you can go or happy or whatever. So that's why I do it the way that I do it. Yeah, it, it makes it feel more like a performance than an audition. Like, I think we can all attest to this as performers that like uh, we can prepare as much as we want for those auditions. But man, unless you think of it as a performance, it's different. And anybody who's had performing experience realizes that like <laughs> shit doesn't always go the way it's supposed to. <laughs> oh, totally. 
and you do have to think on your feet and having that kind of improv skill in your pocket is really helpful to keep things fresh honestly talk about the rehearsals um as we've mentioned mike and i have worked on uh, a couple productions of his before and um, my biggest takeaway was that it was certainly more collaborative but also like we we did go through this process of kind of improving and trying things in a scene uh, different ways but not necessarily getting direction from you just in our in our own acting like saying okay like that didn't work as well can I try something different and see kind of the reaction to get out of my colleagues and like the people who are in the room to me it is extremely important as an artist that you are allowed to be an artist yeah I don't know if it's just my nature that I don't like being told what to do all the time I feel that especially once you have some experience under your belt, that you need to be trusted with that experience and with your ability. If I hire somebody, I am basically, without actually saying it, I feel that you are vocally suited for this role, and I feel like you are adult enough and artistic enough to portray the character that I foresee in the show. Therefore... I don't see why I need to stage this thing within an inch of its life. You know, we are all blessed with brains. We are all blessed with ideas. Some of them are great. Some of them suck, my, myself included. But we need to have the ability to play and to try and to make mistakes. And I feel that this is the best way to make it happen. Really, my... My way of directing is very hands-off with few exceptions. That is things that need major coordination like fight scenes or choreography. Not that I'm a dancer, but if you're looking for a specific thing to happen, obviously you need a little bit of help there to make sure everybody's on the same page. Also, I feel it's important to get feedback from your colleagues. There's a huge stigma um, about talking to your colleagues about their acting or whatnot. And I think if you at least open a dialogue and say, we are basically a team, don't be excessively mean about it. But like, if you want to inspire people, then you need to have open dialogue. And at the end of the day, there is somebody who needs to make a decision. That's the director. But ultimately, what is more important? Making sure that a director's exact vision, sorry, vision is executed or that the show seems authentic and real and it's well produced. For me, it's the latter. And so that's why I take a very hands-off approach and trust people. I think something that's been really great about working with you specifically is that hands-off nature that you have really allows an individual to kind of like fully flesh out what what they've already been working on in their head about their character once they're in the space with with other people. Yeah, when you get into that rehearsal space, everybody's got their own just personal like vibe and how they are, which may or may not be the same as the character that they're playing. But you want to to create that energy and that um, that excitement, right? Instead of it turning into like, oh, I'm just a a piece of the assembly belt or the cog and in the wheel, you know, or the process. So that's what helps keep it live. Yeah. I've, I've been that cog in a machine in productions before. And let me tell you, not pleasant. I, it doesn't feel like art when, when that's how you're treated with this particular production. Um, 
our production schedule is going to be rather short as many productions during the time of COVID are. <laughs> We're looking at three to four weeks, two weeks of rehearsing, one of those weeks being, you know, musical rehearsals and then straight into staging, probably two weekends of, of performances, really. But I think it can be challenging when you're looking at, okay, really, I've got two weeks to really get the music with my colleagues into my body and then a week to get the staging that we're doing into our bodies. And granted, these shows are shorter. They're not full length operas, which I think helps with that schedule. Right. It does go really fast. Uh, That's how I like to move. You know, I write these things with the intent of them being able to be put up within a week. So if we have more time than that, then that's just gravy, right? It's icing on the cake. So that's why it's super important for me to be with the right personnel Uh and that they understand that there is a huge level of trust there because we have such a finite amount of time to put this thing together. Yeah. And also why I'm hands off. It all feeds into this whole worldview of my way of rehearsing and uh, doing things. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of wraps up talking about everything involved in uh, putting on our production of Elixir. Um, We're certainly going to keep you guys updated as we go through formalizing everything to do with this production. Just to kind of give you a preview of some of the things that we're going to do this season, we are going to be interviewing people. I know we didn't do any interviews last season and uh, we've both created lists of people that were like yeah we really want to interview these people so um, that's on the docket Um, we're going to keep our playlist because we felt like those were pretty popular and we're going to keep our as we call it like either soapbox issues or like special interest podcasts that we did individually so thank you for continuing to listen and uh, can't wait for what we have coming up in this season Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. Ciao.